Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? This is what happens when you take algorithms that are predicting what will work on you. They're not predicting what you want, they're predicting what you can't help but watch. So the problem is this is making the world go crazy and mess. We call this human downgrading. It's the social climate change of culture. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in. This week, we have a great guest. Tristan Harris is here. And Tristan is one of the most eloquent and effective critics of big tech out there today. He's a former design ethicist at Google who, after trying to change things from inside the mothership, left several years ago to try to do it from the outside. Uh, He is the person who coined the term time well spent, which led Apple, Facebook, and Google to all introduce features to track and limit the time we spend on social media. But that was a baby step. Harris reckons that big tech's algorithms are destroying society in ways that are obvious and not so obvious, in the same way that carbon is destroying our atmosphere, our environment, and he is calling for huge changes in the way that big tech operates, the whole surveillance, nature of the internet, etc., what he calls the attention economy. It's quite radical stuff, but he is also very convincing. Now, Harris usually spends uh, much of his time jetting around the world, speaking with world leaders and companies and conferences, kind of sounding the alarm, but we caught up with him recently. And I think you're really going to enjoy this one. It will definitely give you uh, some stuff to think about just in terms of what is kind of happening on a daily basis when you're scrolling through your phone or on the internet, etc. And so without further ado, I give you Tristan Harris. Can we go back to how you got started? I believe it was six years ago. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah, twenty February 2013. Yeah, uh, so what's happening? I was a tech entrepreneur at a small, tiny little startup of 10 people called Apture. We got talent acquired by Google, which means they bought our team, got absorbed into the mothership. And at that time, I was about 27 years old, something like that. And I had all my friends, including the founders of Instagram and people making Path and everybody I knew who was caught in the rat race of making technology, it was less and less about making things that would help people and more and more about what would capture their attention. And I started noticing this. It's ridiculously obvious when you think about it. There's only so much attention and how are we going to get it? We have to crawl into your brain and we have to figure out how do we pull on a puppet string and get that attention out of you. 
And I made this presentation at Google, basically that turned into a cultural awakening within the company. I sent it to 10 people for feedback. It spread virally to 10,000 people. And it said, basically, we have a moral responsibility to get the attention economy right. Meaning we Google and Apple and Facebook. It was more an address to the whole industry, but it happened to be addressed to Google because I was inside. It said, we are shaping 2 billion people's thoughts. And if you know anything about the way that our minds work, thoughts precede action, and action precedes reality and choices and consequences. So it's so invisible to people, people don't think that. They say, oh, that's not, that's not me. I'm choosing yeah. my own thoughts. So how was, what was the reaction? I mean, you said it spread virally, but then what's the dot, dot, dot? What happened? What happened was I moved from being a product manager to becoming a design ethicist. So I was thinking about how do you ethically influence 2 billion people's thoughts in languages you don't even speak, relationships you don't know, you're restructuring. How do you ethically restructure the world when you are building technology? It wasn't that Google said, hey, you get to be the king or the czar of figuring that out or deciding, but they did give me the space to research and think about that question, which up until then, strangely, no one had been thinking about. And that was actually a really surprising moment because I thought for sure there would be someone inside of Google, Apple, et cetera, who's really thinking about the consequences of everything that were being made. And then I really realized even when I went to conferences, there was no one who had genuinely been thinking about that as a design question. I don't mean to say that. Yeah, this is, but this it is was, a long, this is a long yeah. literature. I, I, so there's a huge rich history here. And this is not a yeah. tech bro woke up and thought, <laughs> oh, he had the answer to the world's problem. This is not that at yeah, all. Yeah. This is a, a recognition that when it comes to people actually making design decisions, I was inside the Gmail team before yeah. this. And I thought, okay, Gmail is a really stressful product. People spend hours a day in Gmail and it really sucks. People don't feel good when they're you know, checking their email constantly, interrupting themselves, checking again, rereading the old message 10 times, not knowing what to say, then feeling bad, then distracting themselves, going to Facebook. That entire flow is really hard. And I thought for sure, okay, if there was one room in the world where people cared about how is Gmail affecting your breathing, your physiology, your stress, whether or not you're like the whole thing, I was in the room. Like there wasn't some bigger, more adult room where yeah. the people were thinking about that because this was the Gmail design team. And I was disappointed, not that the intention of care was not there. People talked about how do we give people peace of mind, et cetera. But the level of granularity, surgical precision about how to accomplish that, about what are we really doing to people and how would we correct for those stresses and those harms. And, and it wasn't happening. And so I realized that the whole industry was missing this kind of conscience. And, you know, when people say no, you know, Tristan's the moral conscience of Silicon Valley, I don't want to be the moral conscience of Silicon Valley. I want Silicon Valley to have a conscience that's the almost like the missing brain organ, you know, that's just the self-reflective brain organ that says, how do we align what we're doing with the fabric of society rather than gobble it up and spit out some dysfunctional version of society? Yeah. So that's that's the kind of change we have to make. You became this uh, design ethicist, and then eventually you left. Correct. I left after about two years. I tried to change things from the inside, and that didn't go very far. Contrary to popular belief, if you say, hey, you're, you know, you're trying to change things, people, they say, oh, it's all about the money. Google's just greedy. They, they just want to maximize profit, and that's why they didn't do anything about it. And I think subconsciously, money and profit and motive and uh, you know, metrics have a huge role. 
but it wasn't like that as a person. So there I am in a body walking around the Google campus as a physical location. And I sit down with someone like who's the head of Android or something. And we're like, hey, can we make this better? And it was never a response that was equivalent of, no, we would lose all our money if we did that. Right. It would be a nodding of, you know, I think that's really important. I'm really glad, you know, you're thinking about that. We should definitely talk to this person and this person, and maybe we can get something done and this other, but nothing would ever happen. I presume because there's just a huge inertia behind this giant machine. Exactly. I think that's the right diagnosis. It's the inertia. It's there's already a product roadmap. We're responding to the market demands. And I realized if the market wasn't recognizing that this was a problem, we couldn't design for it. So I left and I had no idea what to do. I mean, in terms of, you know, how do you go from being inside the exact place you need to be to make that change happen to suddenly you're out on your own and there's no platform. What do you do? And I felt hopeless for a long period of time. There was just weeks where I felt like I would sort of check my email and respond to the introductions that had been given to me and try to get some media attention. But, you know, it didn't go very far. And what really started to flip it, October 2016, there was a huge feature on our work in the Atlantic magazine. And then Brexit had happened and the Trump election had just happened. And that suddenly woke up the whole world, that social media could have, it wasn't clear then, by the way, what influence it had had, but people had a sense that it was reshaping elections. And now that's become crystal clear because the other part of the story that's important people need to understand is that, you know, the mind is vulnerable. Um, when I was a kid, I was a magician, and that fundamentally reframes the way that I see the world because instead of using inside out thinking, meaning that choice happens from the inside of your body and then gets expressed outwards. Magicians teach you to learn or think about the world from outside in thinking. How could an external environment reshape the conditions around you so that you don't perceive that someone's tilting your choices, but they are. And that entire worldview was reinforced when I was at this lab called the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab that taught engineering students essentially about the principles of persuasion, social psychology, you know, what happens in Las Vegas, clicker training for dogs, like the entire full stack understanding of right. persuasion. And that was that where you know Kevin Systrom from? Mike Krieger, yes. Yeah. So there Mike was two Krieger. founders of yeah. Instagram, and one of them and I, he and I were in the class together, and we had studied persuasive technology. We actually built a project called Send the Sunshine, which was a persuasive technology to cheer people up. So the idea was, if you were sitting in London and it was 10 days of bad weather, the app, this is, by the way, before the iPhones. This yeah. is in 2006. This is really... You have to remember just how yeah, yeah. different it would be to think about yeah. apps in that context. But the idea was, you know, sure, with the phone, theoretically, you would know someone's zip code or location. A, a server could know, hey, you had 10 days of bad weather. And it would text your other friend and say, hey, Danny, will you text your friend Michael, who's in London with bad weather, to send them the sunshine? Take a picture of the sun and send them. So it'd be like cheering people up at scale. Right. And so that's persuasive technology, theoretically, for good. And that was what we were learning. We weren't learning persuasive technology to manipulate people. Yeah. We were learning how could you apply this to help people live happier, fuller lives, go to the gym, floss, fulfill their own goals. But of course what happened is that this whole discipline got co-opted into what would be really good at hijacking people's psychology to get them looking at things on screens. And this phrase that we coined, the race to the bottom of the brainstem, really accurately describes what happens because 
at the beginning, it's like, okay, how do I put red trigger colors on the app? How do I make it infinite scroll, remove the stopping cues so your mind doesn't know how to wake up and your mind never catches up to your intentions. And so you just sit there scrolling forever. Our, my co-founder, Aza Raskin, invented infinite scroll. He estimates it wastes 200 million hours a day, I think. That's the other thing is you realize the mind is this primitive instrument and we don't even have the cognitive grappling hooks to conceive of a choice like infinite scroll that one little, it's like two lines of code, you know, mm-hmm. you, you know, 10 lines of code, whatever. You, you do that and your mind can't automatically feel what that happening to 200 million hours a day to billions of people, what that would do. Yeah. So as E.O. Wilson said, the problem of humanity is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. We have these ancient paleolithic instincts, medieval institutions from the 18th century, and then godlike tech. That is the problem. And it's true across everything, whether it's climate change, because we have exponential ways of doing extraction and dumping stuff in the atmosphere, or we have exponential narrative information warfare tech, which is like Facebook, or we have exponential behavior modification in the form of something as innocuous as infinite scroll. Yeah. But our brains don't have the instincts to even conceive as a designer or as the recipient what that's doing. So you kind of start this movement, time well spent, coin that term. Yeah. And then... Not sure exactly the time frames, but within a year-ish, Apple, Android, et cetera, they come up with these, even Facebook, these tools, which at least tell you this is how much time you spend on your screen. Yeah. doesn't feel like that's really moving the needle much. Right. So the history of time well spent is in 2014, while I was still at Google, I was given an opportunity to give a TED Talk, and I introduced basically the problem saying it wasn't about time well spent, like let's have screen time management. That wasn't yeah, yeah. It at all, actually. Yeah. If you look at the original TED Talk, it said the problem is the time spent economy. It's the attention economy. That's the problem. There was a really an the construct, The general construct itself. The construct of we have to compete to rip time and attention out of your nervous system, whether you want it or not. Like that's, we have to get violent yeah. and aggressive. I mean, that, that I was trying to get people to see that. And then the phrase at the end was, And imagine if we did this, this would be like going from an economy that's competing to steal our time to an economy competing to help us spend our time well, competing from a race to the bottom to steal your attention, to now compete in a race to the top for what can minimally use your time and help you get to the life that you want to live. And that was back in 2014. And so there was many years of that conversation being advanced, but the shared understanding and the shared language of phrases like hijacked our minds, tech has hijacked our minds, the race to the bottom of the brainstem, and time well spent. Those three phrases would show up in product design meetings. They'd show up in you know, media. They'd mm-hmm. show up all over the place. And people would say, have you heard of time well spent? And so the reason that I have confidence now, as we look toward the future, that this phrase of human downgrading, it creates shared language for the climate change version of this problem, yeah. can change the system, is because we saw how time well spent could go from a three-word phrase repeated everywhere for four years, and then lead to, in May 2018, three companies, Apple, Google, and Facebook, all adopting versions of time well-spent features, even mirroring the exact language that we had. And the most important thing about that isn't that they launched some charts and graphs of where your time goes. That, as you already said, very small. What's important is that the companies are now competing in a race to the top for who cares more about people's well-being. So the important thing now is that we continue that race from the race at the bottom to the race at the top. So I guess that's the question, right? So if we frame it in a, in terms of climate change and if carbon or climate change is the kind of the, the advertising driven structure of the internet today, yeah. 
Like fossil fuels is fossil attention. We're living in an extraction-based industry, and we have to move to a regenerative attention economy as opposed to an extractive attention economy. Right. So I was just in a talk about climate change, and it's all dire, and we're all going to be drowning very soon as the seas rise. It does feel like, you know, covering these companies month in, month out, YouTube, for example, it does feel like it's all reactive and it's all based on, okay, people showing you this is a horrible thing that's happening on your platform. Okay, we're going to fix that. Right. It's scandal, whack-a-mole fix, scandal, whack-a-mole fix, scandal, whack-a-mole fix. Right. So how does that, given that the five biggest companies are on the West Coast and three of them, two, two, well, two of them anyway, are exist, their meat and drink is advertising, is this extraction economy. How do you undo that? You know, I think that the interesting thing is that denial is powering the inertia of where we are right now. And when you you make it undeniable, when people who are at the tops of these companies can find no excuse, their mind is searching for an exit. And imagine someone's running for exits, like in some visualization, and you're sealing the exits as they're running to each door, right? So there's this argument that, well, technology's done so much good for the world, too. And, oh, Tristan's so negative and (laughs) these kinds of things. Listen, I think YouTube can be great for people. It's never been easier to learn a musical instrument, to laugh with friends, to heal, you know, an injury because you can look up, you know, how to massage your leg when you get injured. Amazing. The problem is their business model has nothing to do with those things. Their business model is not about helping you just laugh with friends, heal your leg, uh, learn a musical instrument. It's meet you at the moment of your distraction and then suck you way down the rabbit hole, specifically in extremist directions. We have this researcher, Guillaume Chaslow, who's the ex-YouTube recommendations engineer. And he's shown that, you know, if you imagine a, a spectrum and on the left side of the spectrum, you have the calm Walter Cronkite, calm David Attenborough side mm-hmm. of YouTube. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have crazy town, UFOs, Bigfoot, yep. conspiracy theories. If I'm YouTube, no matter where you land, you could land in Calm Town or you could land in Crazy Town. Which direction am I going to steer you if I want you to watch more? I'm always going to tilt you towards Crazy Town. And so imagine that YouTube tilts the entire 2 billion ant colony of humanity towards Crazy Town. Three concrete examples of that. If you take a teen girl and you start her on a dieting video, it recommends anorexia videos. If you, this is true about a year ago. Yeah. If you if you start someone on a, anything related to space, it recommends a flat earth, right? The conspiracy yep. theory. Millions, hundreds of millions of views for these things. If you show someone a 9-11 news video or even the Notre Dame video, it would recommend 9-11 conspiracy theories because those are just things that look vaguely similar and tend to keep I was just on doing a story on, uh, about Facebook and Facebook groups, and I was doing a story about celery juice. It's this big thing down here in L.A., Apparently, it can cure restless leg syndromes, psoriasis, and cancer, amongst everything else. Bet you didn't know that. Didn't know that. So I joined a group for the celery juice enthusiasts. Yeah. First recommendation, coffee enema support group. Next one was about root canals, how root canals cause an astonishing array of serious illnesses from cancer to everything on down. And it just gets worse and worse right. and worse. My, my friend who's an advisor and did the Senate intelligence report on the Russian investigation, she calls this the conspiracy correlation matrix. Because when you join one conspiracy, if you ever click on a video on YouTube, it's one conspiracy, you've just subscribed invisibly without hitting a subscribe button. They've now identified that your little avatar, that's like their model of you, really likes, or if you touch that one category, suddenly you're in the conspiracy correlation matrix. So anywhere you go, 
of the possible recommended videos, they'll always include a couple that are those back doors that are the really good ones for helping you fall into these topics. Jordan Peterson is another topic like that. You watch one video and it'll follow you around forever. Yeah. He complains, by the way, of being censored on YouTube. He's the most recommended person on YouTube. Jordan Peterson is. The uh, <laughs> But what you're talking about with Facebook groups is actually also critically important. And it shows that it, this is what happens when you take algorithms that are predicting what will work on you. They're not predicting what you want. They're predicting what you can't help but watch. And the example you gave, you know, we had this example of if a mother, a new mother joins a mom support group mm-hmm. on Facebook. So that should be a great use case, like moms trading advice with each other, trading clothes. What do I do when you're an anti-vax two? in two clicks or something? Anti-vax is one of the top recommended groups. Yep. If you join anti-vax, then that's boom, you've just You've gone down the rabbit hole. All the recommendations were Pizzagate, Chemtrails, Flat Earth, et cetera. So the important thing here also, if you look at the quote, Mark Zuckerberg in February 2017, after the election, says, our new mission, this is when the pressure was just starting. People were like, what the hell did Facebook, yeah. what was its role in Brexit in, in 2016? And so in answer to some of that, they said, hey, let's change our mission statement from making the world more open and connected to our new mission is to bring the world closer together. And the way we're going to do that is with Facebook groups, because that brings people closer together. So he said, literally, there's a quote, and it's in our presentation we just gave a week ago in San Francisco. We built an artificial intelligence to start recommending groups to people. And this is verbatim. And it works. It increased group recommendation, group joins by 50%. And so now, we, you, you know, if you go to a group, it has a very high-profile rectangle on the, on the right-hand side that's got a lot of real estate on the, on the page. And it's to get people to join these groups. And they, they, you know, he told some product manager, I want you to maximize how many groups people join. And so there you are on that mom support page. And right when you land, it has to wake up this model avatar voodoo doll version of you. And it figures out which of the groups, the millions of groups on Facebook, could I get you to join that would cause you to come back, given that you're already a user who liked this mom group. And it's just calculating away. It doesn't know that conspiracy theories are bad. Yeah. So the problem is this is making the world go crazy mess. We call this human downgrading. It's the social climate change of culture because it's a connected system. You know, it shortens attention spans in the attention economy. You want to shorten attention spans, reduce complexity and nuance to go to simpler sounding things. Simpler sounding things means that outrage and like really sensational things works really well. That means that polarization happens because when you say short, like hard to interpret, simple, outrageous things, people polarize to both sides of the issue. People trust each other less. So the entire thing is self-reinforcing towards craziness. And it's almost like a hypnotist telling you, you can wake up now. Like this polarization that we've experienced is artificial. If you look outside with your own eyes at the regular world out there, we've undergone this artificial polarization. It's almost like with climate change, yes, we've got all the CO2, this polarization spew that's just like been, we've been drinking it up in the air, except you can snap your fingers and realize this was all made up. I mean, yes, some people like these conspiracy theories, but the amplification rate was entirely driven by, in this case, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, uh, Reddit, and some other, some other ones by the technology. And I think we're at this really important moment where if we don't realize that we've all been collectively manipulated into this downgraded public sphere, this downgraded epistemology of what we know and believe, we have to sort of recognize first that we've kind of all been under this grand illusion. And that should be calming because you realize we're not actually all as crazy and, you know, as we think we are. We've just been led down this crazy path. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'd be interested to get your perspective. So we started talking about the time I spent at 1440 and I did a bunch of interviews there and I actually sat in on a group was a bunch of tech executives and they started something they call like tech free Shabbat. One day a week, we're just like putting our phones away and it just kind of allows you to recenter and kind of, as we say, just kind of disconnect at least for a time. So you can kind of recenter yourself, but it does feel like to your point around, it's not like there's an evil genius here. No. Yeah, there's Those no malevolent like people intent. that are, you know, that, but it's again, everybody this, actually has this good intention. No one at Facebook wants that conspiracy correlation matrix to happen. No one intended or even thought or even could imagine that that would happen. Yeah. And so, but it's interesting. It's, it does feel like there is an awakening amongst the kind of call it rank and file and leaders in Silicon Valley. And they are starting to take personal steps to be like, okay, I need to kind of recalibrate this for myself for my children for my family for my loved ones right but obviously but this you know part of this the the simplest principle in ethics is the ethics of symmetry do unto others as you would want done to yourself right now we're living in a world where the tech leaders don't let their own kids use the technology that they make and then they themselves disconnect or don't have accounts on these services the simplest principle of ethics that silicon valley could adopt is to design products in a way that they would more than enthusiastically hand their own children to use. And by the way, I'm sure you and I both grew up with technology in a way that our parents did happily endorse the technology that we got because it was super empowering. It enabled us to be more creative, to invent things, to learn about things. This is not an anti-technology conversation. Adobe Photoshop and Microsoft Word didn't tilt the world towards conspiracy theories, make people lonely, and destroy the social fabric and democracy. The reason that it's doing that this time is because technology is entering the space of human vulnerabilities and weaknesses. And this was the point that we've made recently in this human downgrading climate change of culture. You only get human downgrading when you start to overpower human weaknesses. Technology that doesn't touch human weaknesses does not downgrade. It's only the domination and overpowering of human weaknesses like social validation, self-esteem, dopamine, variable schedule rewards, slot machines, social availability, the need that we need to reciprocate every message that comes our way. These are all psychological vulnerabilities, magician tricks, the things that you would know or learn about if you were at a lab like the Persuasive Technology Lab. Once you recognize that, 
just imagine we quarantine that entire quadrant of vulnerabilities and we design technology to wrap around them like a glove but not actually exploit or touch them. Because when they do, that's when things start to go haywire. And right now you can think of technology as being ergonomic or like fitting like a glove to our lizard brain. Yeah. And it needs to fit like a glove our societal consensus. How does it help our societal consensus? How does it fit that like a glove? And strengthen common ground and strengthen shared decision-making because as problems like climate change or inequality go up, it's never been more important that we can find common ground, construct a shared agenda of what we want to do about it, and start to act. Like time is running out, as Yuval Harari and I talk about often. Is yeah. Time is a dimension that really matters. To so talk about time well spent at a civilization level we need to have technology that helps us find common ground and helps us make decisions together. And I don't mean that it's all technology is going to fix it. It's not techno-utopian, but we need to get from the tech that's currently taking us away from that to tech that supports and reverses that. And again, that first step is like a hypnotist snapping their fingers yeah. and saying, you can wake up from all this artificial polarization you've experienced now. Well, that's what's so interesting is also because, you know, I, I'm from the Bay Area. I grew up in San Jose, but I lived in the UK for 15 yeah. years and I've come back and I'm covering tech out here. On the evil genius point, especially when people see signs, see this, you know, techies won't let their kids use this stuff, but they're happy to push it out into the world and become billionaires on the back of it. Yeah. It's a, it creates a very Sort of reminds you of cigarette companies or sugar. You know, the CEO of Lunchables Foods didn't give his own children Lunchables. A, by the way, Lunchables was a billion-dollar-a-year food product, one of the most popular, you know, I successful. Lunchables. I remember that as a kid, too. I, yeah. I don't think I had too much of it or ate too much of it, but <laughs> I remember being thought of thinking he was cool, and the CEO of that company did not give his own children yeah. that product. But the problem is, is like with bologna and cheese is different than... Reconstructing eat. your social identity and making you feel like crap because your friends are always bullying you and you're re rewarding you only when you look different than you actually look. Exactly. You're embarking. Sorry to be so blunt. I, it, it, this is not an anti-tech conversation. We just have to get really utterly clear about the harms because unless we get that honest balance sheet, like this is the bill, this yeah. is the set of harms that we're going to zero out. It's like if we're going to decarbonize our economy, if we're going to de-human downgrade, undo all that, we have to get the full accounting. So that, that's why I'm, I'm pretty so do you, so about and it. are you confident? Because uh, you know, if you're talking to that, do unto others as you would do unto yourself or your whatever it may be. But Imagine a policy that says, hey, companies, you are only allowed, so you have to prove that your, that your own children use this product. Boom, that just corrects about like 50% of the harms, if not more, instantly. That's simple ethics of asymmetry. Imagine there's a policy that says that. You have to have your own children actively using your own products. And if you don't feel good about that, then you quit and you have to change the product until you're allowed to, to do that. That would solve That's like That's a really 50. good idea, actually. It's a very simple one. Yeah. So what now? So what to, to that end? Because it does feel like there's an awakening, at least among, in Silicon Valley, like there are some serious problems here. Yeah. And we're going to protect ourselves. But I just don't know how you reverse that super tanker. I think it's moving. Built. I mean, Apple. So let's take a couple examples. So first of all, Apple's business model is not in the attention mining business. And they're actually one of the best actors. They've been acting incredibly well. And they have an opportunity to completely restructure the attention economy. Oftentimes, people say, how are governments going to regulate? What are policymakers yeah. going to do? Think of Apple as the government of the attention economy. They are not incentivized to maximize attention for their products. They can actually help people. And they do. But they can lean into that a lot more. 
And so think of them like the Federal Reserve or the central bank of attention. And they can really restructure things to align those incentives much faster than a government can. I mean, I'm telling you, in less than one year from now, like iOS, whatever the number is going to be, 14, comes out in September 2020. And in that version, you know, snap your fingers, this whole thing could be flipped around if they had an aggressive plan to reverse the incentives. And what I mean by that is having incentives where instead of offering an app store where most of the apps are free and they make money with advertising, you know, we kick out, let's say, most of those apps and we only allow these apps that are competing to help you with something in your life. And let's say they have this list of things that people want help with in their life. Like let's say it's something like dating, like people want help, you know, meeting meeting people that they're yeah. interested in. Okay. In that world, imagine that instead of competing as they do now to maximize screen time and swiping, which is basically just exploiting the slot machine instinct in your brain and turning the slot machine into people you can swipe, they could instead say, what if these companies were competing to only offer something to you if they thought they could help? So imagine Facebook rubbing its chin being like, okay, you've got 2,000 friends in my account and and you know, you've got these 10 friends over here who love are super social, like the mavens, or the people who love bringing people together. And if you tap one of them on the shoulder and say, hey, would you make a post to offer to host a dinner for all their single friends? That's like the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. And that could actually offer more immediate and like leveraging the effortless social instincts as social primates that we have than the Tinder world and the Hinge world and the Bumble, whatever these worlds are that subtract and destroy those instincts that we naturally have for meeting each other. Yeah. I mean, chemistry formed naturally when people are hanging out together for four days over yeah. a weekend. Facebook still exists in this new economy, but it exists in a world where it's being asked, how do you want to help people? How do you want to help people achieve their goals? How do you want to help people find the relationships that they love? How do you want to help people meet together to solve big problems like climate change? How do you want to help people learn musical instruments together? Right? So we're still leveraging these infrastructures but we're leveraging them as utilities or services competing to help people live their lives. And so you'd say, oh, but this is going to cost money. But it's like, yeah, because for free, we're getting social isolation, free downgrading of our attention spans, free destruction of democracy, free breakdown of civility. Well, that's what's so funny. As a a journalist, you know, I'll send around an article to friends and be like, you should read this. And I'll be like, sometimes our paywall is harder than others. And no one wants to sign up, even though it's free initially. No one wants to pay for anything. Everybody's gotten very, everybody's gotten high on this drug of free everything right. without thinking, it's again like climate change. It's like, you know, yeah, things cheap, are cheaper because you're not cheap dealing energy, with You're not paying for the externalities. Exactly. And the thing is people often think, oh, well, those externalities, they affect someone else or it's not real. They go into denial. I think we have to realize also is human downgrading affects you even if you don't use these products. Because even if let's say you don't use YouTube, which has 2 billion users and you don't use Facebook, which is like 2.3 billion users the size of Christianity and Islam, by the way, each of them. It's so insane. Even if you don't use those products, your elections will still be determined by everyone. Yeah, you live does. in a Facebook world. You live in a YouTube world. Right. Whether you're on it or not. Whether you're right. on it or not. And the same thing is true if you're a kid or you're a parent. You say, hey, I don't, I'm not, my kids don't use this stuff. I'm, I'm safe. Like, I'm safe. I, I, I'm fine. Well, guess what? All their friends do use these things. And all the parents of their friends will believe the conspiracy theories that are showing up and not vaccinate their kids. And that'll affect your kids. Like, it affects herd immunity. So we, we have to realize that this is a connected problem. All of us have our hands on the steering wheel. And just like climate change, it takes all of us to agree and say we have to do something different. We have to. It's like humanity is kind of coming out of its adolescence. We're children. We, we can't even recognize these obvious threats. We have to change. Because they're seen as separate. They're seen as separate, which is why which having is like a, a flood shared, over here or a fire over there. Yeah, or, or and whatever. what if they were called hurricane? You know, uh, 
Hurricane Chevron and, you know, Cyclone Exxon and, you know, these kinds of things. It helps close the loop. When you see depression spikes, we should call them, you know, Instagram depressions. We, we have to name the source. The Facebook genocide in Myanmar. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, whew, that hits home. I mean, it's sad to me because I, I'm not trying to vilify the companies, right? I think it's really important. Everyone I know who works in these products, they're all good people. They're really trying their best. They didn't anticipate this. But what really matters now is the extent to which they recognize their responsibility. Like, there's no more time for this. They either recognize it or not. And I, I honestly think looking back in history, people are going to say, what side of history were you on? That's and the kind of moment we're at right now. Absolutely. I think this is 100% urgent. It's on the scale of climate change. It's moving faster than climate change. It's the social climate change of, of culture, of politics, of democracy, of ethnic tensions. And those have all been amplified you know, through some of the dynamics that have been happening. Yeah. And just to say, it's not an easy immediate, it's not like there's this one line fix and gosh, these companies are just resisting. But if they just change this one thing, we have to flip the incentives. And there's a whole structured strategy that we at the Center for Humane Technology are trying to empower all these different groups because we're going to need policymakers and shareholder activists and the media to guide the conversation. But to move away from the scandals and grievances to the systemic problem of human downgrading, just like we have to move from hurricane such and such and cyclone such and such to the systemic problem of climate change, and what are we going to do? Is there any way to quickly sum up that approach, like the plan for you guys going forward? Well, you know, luckily with seven people in San Francisco, we can solve the entire world's problem. That's awesome. You know, That's pretty, great. You know, it's, yeah, uh, it's, quite, yeah. it's quite trivial. <laughs> um, we play a small role in supporting and trying to frame the issues so everyone else can go to work together. We are a collection of, you know, we're a nonprofit. We have a small collection of insiders who used to build the YouTube recommendation system or build infinite scroll. A group or, of Apple states. Something like that. But I think we're also offering solutions. There's often been this framing that we're these critics and we're just upset with yeah. technology and we're complaining. It's like not at all. We're trying to move to a world where there's solutions. And so we yeah. have some ideas about what would fix it but we need to have all these groups working together. So on our Get Involved page, we're trying to route people to working groups. There's a series of public events, dinners. There's going to be sort of a roadshow of this sort of inconvenient truth for tech, which we call human downgrading. Talking to shareholder activist groups, policymakers, governments around the world care about this issue. But yeah. if you think about the scale, it's, it's just utterly enormous when you realize every country, every society, every parent, they care. But instead of waiting for us, it's really about having these conversations yourself in the boardroom, in the media room, in the product decision-making room, because that's exactly what's led to the changes that have happened so far. Yeah. Well, for all of our sake, I wish you luck. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Cheers. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Tristan for sitting down. He's obviously a very busy man these days, um, running around the globe. At least for me, what he says makes a lot of sense. I'm not really sure how it is fundamentally remade. There's a lot of skin in the game uh, from companies like Facebook and Google and all the rest, really the internet itself. But it is fascinating just to kind of take a step back and look at what is really happening here. Anyhow, that's it. On a brighter note, you can find me in the paper this weekend at the Sunday Times or online at thetimes.co.uk. I'm on the Twitters. At Danny Fortson, you can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And the pivot is coming. I think we're going to have a date for you. It's coming next month, early next month, in early July. It is happening. More details to follow next week. Keep your eye out. Anyhow, until next week, have a fantastic weekend. Take it easy. Bye bye. <laughs>